Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. Well, it's been something of a whirlwind in terms of news and information for the day. We'll cover some of it, but um, it's uh, it's been a long day. Uh, today, we're going to talk with April Yamasaki. She is the author of Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I appreciate that uh, April puts this in the context of one's Christian faith, where we're encouraged to take up our cross and follow Christ, that we are to uh, consider others and esteem others. Um, we're going to talk with her about the challenges of self-care that's appropriately uh, fixed within the Christian worldview. We're also going to uh, hear from uh, Jarrett Stepman. He's the editor and commentary uh, writer for The Daily Signal and co-host of The Right Side of History. We're going to talk about what he calls the media's war on Brett Kavanaugh uh, and the fact that it hit a new low, uh, talking about the New Yorker article. And in fact, when we had originally planned to have that conversation, it was before this most recent allegation was made uh, public. So we'll touch on that, but uh, primarily talk about uh, the coverage of that particular version of um, uh, of accusation that appeared there and why the New York Times decided not to run it. Um, we'll also hear from Kay Wills Wyma, author of Not the Boss of Us, putting overwhelmed in its place in a do-all, be-all world. That's coming up all in today's program. First, some of the developing news stories. Christine Blasey Ford, who accused the Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct, will get a dignified, comfortable opportunity to testify Thursday. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley says... And the Senate Judiciary Committee may vote on Friday on Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination. That was until uh, Mr. Avenatti, the attorney who represented the um, uh, porn star, uh, released information on what is now being characterized as a third accuser. Michael Avenatti, the um, uh, lawyer for Stormy Daniels, could revealed rather the identity of another accuser today, saying that he does have cooperating witnesses. And the president called on the international community to isolate Iran during the speech at the U.N. General Assembly. The House is planning to subpoena potentially incriminating memos by the fired FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe as Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein prepares to meet with the president over a report that he discussed secretly recording the president and Bill Cosby. Cosby woke up behind bars this morning after he was sentenced uh, yesterday to three to ten years in prison for sexual assault. His attorneys vowed to appeal. Well, again, the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley rejected the requests from Democrats to delay Thursday's key hearings on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court and assured skeptics that Kavanaugh accuser Christine Blasey Ford would have a fair opportunity to tell her story. In a letter to ranking member Dianne Feinstein, Grassley wrote, I am not going to silence Dr. Ford after I promised and assured her that I would provide her a safe, comfortable, and dignified opportunity to testify. There is no reason to delay the hearing any further. Both Kavanaugh and Ford are expected to testify before the committee uh, tomorrow. And in fact, um, uh, Ms. Ford, the accuser, has already released essentially her written testimony. Uh, incredibly, Feinstein, uh, she acknowledged she can't guarantee Ford would show up. She had said that a day or so ago. The veteran Democratic senator had asked for the hearing to be delayed after the New Yorker magazine published claims by Deborah Ramirez, a Yale classmate of Kavanaugh, who says he exposed himself to her while drunk at a college party. In the 1980s, Kavanaugh has denied all allegations of sexual misconduct, and that predates what Mr. Avenatti released, uh, released earlier today. Uh, Senator Grassley also announced that the Judiciary Committee had tentatively rescheduled a vote on Kavanaugh's nomination for Friday morning, further angering uh, the senator, uh, the senior senator, uh, Democrat Feinstein. As mentioned, Michael Avenatti, who is representing 
Adult film star Stormy Daniels in her lawsuit against President Trump could reveal and did the identity of another woman accusing Brett Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct. In an interview with CNN uh, earlier this week, he said he had a client prepared to come forward within 48 hours with new allegations. The publicity-savvy lawyer, who has become a cable news mainstay, said that he didn't traffic in rumor and nonsense. Then on Tuesday, with reports that he had been uh, duped by an opposition group, he, uh, tw- uh, his uh, Twitter account suddenly became private. However, the lawyer insisted he had not been scammed, that his Twitter account went private only because of online threats, and that his client was still willing to come forward, but only when she's ready. And that um, apparently occurred today. President Trump on Tuesday traded fiery accusations with Iran's president on the floor of the U.N. General Assembly, among other things, calling on the international community to isolate the regime as Hassan Rouhani accused the president of having a Nazi disposition. The president of the United States pulled the U.S. out of the 2015 Iran deal in May, and the administration imposed economic sanctions in August. The administration is expected to slap further sanctions on Iran's crude oil exports, exports rather in November, and he alleged Iran uses funds from the nuclear deal to repress its people and to fund havoc and slaughter in Yemen and Syria. The president targeted Iran as he was uh, met with awkward laughter by the General Assembly audience while boasting of successes under his administration. However, he brushed off the unexpected response and soldiered on with his America First agenda. And House Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlot said the House will subpoena memos drafted by former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe um, that may indicate Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein discussed secretly recording the president. Goodlot told reporters that he could issue the subpoena as soon as Thursday when uh, Rosenstein or Steen is uh, scheduled to meet with the president at the White House. The New York Times reported on Friday that in the same month he appointed Mueller Rosenstein suggested wearing a wire during meetings with the president, remarks his defenders insist were merely sarcastic, and invoking the Constitution to have the cabinet consider removing him from office. The alleged comments were documented in private memos written by McCabe, who characterized it as anything but uh, sarcastic. And Bill Cosby will serve three to ten years in state prison. A judge ruled on Tuesday, marking the culmination of a long, sad fall from grace for the comedy legend. The former television superstar who made a career out of his squeaky clean fatherly image was sentenced after being found guilty in April of three counts of felony aggravated indecent assault in one of the most widely publicized trials in modern history. Cosby's legal team asked that he be released on bail pending his appeal. However, the judge denied that request. Cosby was handcuffed, sent to prison immediately as Montgomery County Judge Stephen O'Neill deemed that he was quite possibly a danger to the community. And on this day in 2003, President W. George W. Bush and Russian President Vladimir Putin opened a two-day summit at Camp David. And on this day in 1960, the first ever debate between presidential nominees takes place as Democrat John F. Kennedy and Republican Richard M. Nixon face off before a national TV audience in Chicago. First ever debate. Kind of wish that one hadn't happened and we wouldn't have to endure the others, at least televised. And uh, on this day in 1957, the musical West Side Story opened on Broadway. Just some of uh, the calendar. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we uh, return, we'll continue to talk about some of the news. And we'll also look forward to our conversation with uh, April Yamasaki. Yamasaki, that's her name. Four gifts seeking self-care for heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 19 minutes after 4 o'clock.
Well, President Trump defended the sovereignty of America and every other country before the 73rd United Nations General Assembly on Tuesday in his second address to the world body. To the other world leaders and diplomats, the president delivered an unpopular message against globalism while also calling for cooperation. He delivered tough talk to America's enemies while also talking about peace. And he took on major U.N. issues at the annual gathering, such as those involving the U.N. Human Rights Council and the International Criminal Court. Well, borrowing from his uh, campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, he called on other leaders to do the same for their citizens. Among some of the uh, takeaways, the president uh, said that more than any, uh, almost any administration, he had succeeded. He engaged in what sounded almost like a campaign about the administration's place in history and got an unexpected reaction. Today, I stand before the United Nations General Assembly to share the extraordinary progress we've made. In less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country, he said. Well, the assertion prompted laughter from the world leaders and diplomats in his audience. I didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay, the president said. Undaunted, Trump uh, sought to explain the progress made under his administration. The United States is stronger, safer, and a richer country than it was when I assumed office. America's economy is booming like never before. Also, he challenged Iran's leaders to so uh, pointing out that they sow chaos, death and destruction. He spoke of the Syrian civil war in which the United States twice launched airstrikes on the regime of Syrian dictator Bashar Assad. Uh, for using chemical weapons against its own people. The United States will respond if chemical weapons are deployed by the Assad regime, he said. He noted, however, that the problems in Syria can't be fully addressed without also addressing Assad's chief financier, Iran. Every solution to the humanitarian crisis in Syria must also include a strategy to address the brutal regime that has fueled and financed it, the corrupt dictatorship in Iran. Trump said Iran's leaders sow chaos, death, and destruction. They do not respect their neighbors or borders or sovereign rights of nations. Instead, Iran's leaders plunder the nation's resources to enrich themselves and to spread mayhem across the Middle East and far beyond. In May, the president pulled the United States out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the multilateral Iran nuclear deal negotiated by the Obama administration in 2015. Other parties to the agreement uh, were Britain, France, Germany, China, and Russia. The president said the Iranian people are rightly outraged that their leaders have embezzled billions of dollars from Iran's treasury, seized valuable portions of the economy, and looted the people's religious endowments, all to line their own pockets and send their proxies to wage war. And although it's unpopular with some allies, the president noted that many countries in the Middle East support his decision to withdraw from the agreement. The president uh, also suggested that uh, countries, those present at the U.N. General Assembly, make their countries great again. He made the case for American sovereignty and the sovereignty of other countries while still calling for cooperation. We are standing up for America and for the American people, and we are also standing up for the world, he said. He called for other countries to step up and share the burden of the cost of their own defense with respect to NATO. He also said the United States will not pay for for more than 25 percent of the U.N. budget and specified that the U.S. would not yield to global governance on uh, migration or the International Criminal Court. The United States, he said, will not participate in the new global compact on migration. Migration should not be governed by an international body unaccountable to our own citizens. The only long-term solution to the migration crisis is to help people build more hopeful futures in their home countries, make their countries great again. As for the International Criminal Court, he said, we will never surrender America's sovereignty to an unelected, unaccountable global bureaucracy. America is governed by Americans. We reject the ideology of globalism and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. The Trump administration withdrew in June from the U.N. Human Rights Council, notably made, uh, made up of many member nations that are dictatorships and human rights abusers. We will not return until real reform is enacted. 
Uh, and then on North Korea, uh, he uh, pointed out the difference that had been made in the, the span of a year. In his 2017 U.N. General Assembly address, you might recall, he ridiculed North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un as rocket man because of his erratic missile testing and nuclear programs. This year, he asserted the missiles and rockets are no longer flying in every direction. The United States has great strength and patience, but it is a force to defend itself or its allies. We will n- uh, have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea, he said to his uh, in his remarks last year. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. Well, since that time, the two met in Singapore in June to talk about the denuclearization of North Korea. And although Kim isn't abandoning his weapons program, he has freed Americans held as political prisoners and returned the remains of American veterans on the, uh, of the Korean War. We had uh, highly productive conversations and meetings, and we agreed that it was in both countries' interest to pursue the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, again, without defining terms. Uh, the president went on to say, since that meeting, we have already seen a number of encouraging measures that uh, few could have imagined only a short time ago. The missile and rockets are no longer flying in every direction. Nuclear testing is stopped. Some military facilities are already being dismantled. And then the president got tough on Venezuela. He called out Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and promised more U.S. sanctions on the regime of the southern, or rather the South American nation. Today we are announcing additional sanctions against the repressive regime targeting Maduro's inner circle and close advisors. More than two million people have fled Venezuela, the president noted, saying current Currently, we are witnessing a human tragedy, as an example, in Venezuela. Not long ago, Venezuela was one of the richest countries on earth. Today, socialism has bankrupted the oil-rich nation and driven its people into abject poverty. The bottom line is, the president said, all nations of the world should resist socialism and the misery it brings to everyone. Then the president spoke of energy independence and security and noted that energy can be a new form of coercion and domination, uh, referring to Russia, the Middle East, energy security. The United States has become the largest energy producer in the world, he said, and is ready to export our abundant, affordable supply of oil, clean coal and natural gas. He specifically called out the organization of the petroleum exporting countries made up of Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Qatar, Uh, Indonesia, Libya, United Arab Emirates, uh, Algeria, Nigeria, Ecuador, Gambon, um, Angola, Equatorial Guinea, and Congo. OPEC and the OPEC nations are, as usual, ripping off the rest of the world, and I don't like it. Nobody should like it, the president said. We defend many of these nations for nothing, and then they take advantage of us by giving us high oil prices. He pointed to Poland as an example of a country aspiring to independence from Russian energy supplies, while Germany is taking the wrong route. He uh, offered some tough talk on trade and tariffs. Of course, there's nothing new there. And another uh, pet issue, he bemoaned America's $800 billion annual trade deficit and said more tariffs and trade deals deals. Deal renegotiations were on the way. We are systematically renegotiating broken and bad trade deals, he said. Uh, He announced last month a new uh, U.S.-Mexico trade agreement and yesterday announced a a trade deal with South Korea. Uh, The president had a lot to say. It's actually worth uh, listening to or reading uh, some of the things you would like to have heard a president of the United States say to the United Nations uh, for many years. And for the president to have said it was uh, somewhat refreshing. So you may want to check that out um, amidst all of the bravado that is also 
his uh, his style. Uh, during that uh, season, five countries that are signatories to the Iran nuclear deal announced that uh, they will create a financial mechanism to allow them to continue trade with Iran, including importing oil. As the sanctions kick in this November, European Union foreign policy chief Frederica Mogherini, or something like that, made the announcement to reporters at the United Nations in New York on the sidelines of the General Assembly. So the tug of war um, has continued. Well, Congress is up to its old tricks again, trying to pass another massive spending bill that uses gimmicks and tricks to push deficit spending even higher, and it thinks it can hoodwink the president into signing it. Well, next week, the House is expected to vote on a combined fiscal year 2018 continuing resolution and a fiscal year 2019 spending bill for the Departments of Defense, Labor, Health and Human Services. The Cromnibus bill, as it's being called, would provide over $855 billion in funding for 2019, making up two-thirds of the total discretionary budget. The Senate passed the measure in uh, rather on Tuesday in um uh, if the House passes the Senate version, I should say Tuesday last, passes the uh, version and the president signs it into law, the government will stay open past September 30th. But um, at what cost? Well, earlier this year, Congress busted the budget and with the whopping spending deal that ran up nearly $300 billion in new, uh, new debt, the bill would continue those spending levels. Take the so-called savings from, ch- from changes in mandatory programs. The bill claims nearly $8 billion in savings from such changes. Well, this is the most commonly used gimmick to increase discretionary spending. These savings, as they're called, are included in appropriations bills as a rescission of funding of uh, funds, rather, which means uh, that unspent money is taken back or spending is delayed until a subsequent year. Congress then uses these savings, if you will, and puts the money toward other unrelated programs. The problem is almost all of these rescissions are the money that was uh, never going to be spent in the first place. Last year's omnibus bill claimed $17 billion in savings from changes in mandatory programs that had no actual budget uh, effect. In reality, those saved funds go toward new spending that only adds to our growing pile of debt. Well, it goes on from there, but that's all uh, expected to be taken up. Shortly, And the Federal Reserve raised the benchmark interest rate by another quarter percentage point. Uh, the Federal Reserve uh, raised uh, t- uh, today uh, the short-term interest rates for the third time this year. The U.S. Central Bank's Federal Open Market Committee increased its benchmark federal funding rates, setting a range of 2% to 2.25% and uh, continue to signal one more rate hike in 2018. Keep in mind, this is September. Only got a couple of months less left. It's coming. The Policy Setting Board removed the word uh, accommodative from its statement. The move indicates that the Fed is moving closer to the end of the current rate hike cycle. Officials have been rolling back accommodative monetary policies initially employed after the 2008 financial crisis. The Fed has indicated it will continue to gradually raise rates at least through 2019, a strategy used to prevent the economy from growing too fast and keep prices from spiking. It also began to, to uh, process, uh, or the, the process, I should say, of winding down its massive portfolio of government debt and mortgage-backed securities in uh, late 2017. Investors have expected the Fed to increase the federal funds rate a total of four times this year, uh, with the next rate hike likely in December. The Fed is forecasted in another uh, three rate increases in 2019. For the first time in our nation's history, voters in 24 counties in West Virginia will be able to vote using their mobile phones. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? And while some are hailing the decision because it will make voting easier for members of the military deployed overseas, 
employees, and nobody's opposed to that. Experts are warning of possible security breaches. After researching previously available options, the secretary's team identified that most electronic ballot delivery technology required access to a desktop computer, printer, and scanner, all of which present significant barriers to overseas voters, especially those in combat zones or engaged in covert operations. Well, that's what the Secretary of State's office explained in a press release this week. The state is partnering with Boston, Massachusetts-based company Votes, V-O-A-T-Z, Inc., uh, and they've developed uh, what they say is a secure mobile voting application that allows voters to receive, vote, and return their ballots electronically. Well, there is concern about the possibility of, of hacking into that kind of system, and so the while the report indicates that they've developed a, a, developed a system that makes that nearly impossible, there are lots of skeptics who aren't yet convinced that that is the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with uh, April Yamasaki. She's the author of Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. The book is Herald, uh, published rather by Herald Press. She'll be joining us in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, we often hear the phrase, take care of yourself. But the question is, how do we find the time to do that in today's busy world? Well, for many of us, many of us believers, the idea of self-care sounds contrary to the command of Jesus to deny yourself and follow him. So how exactly do believers balance these two seemingly opposite pursuits? Well, my next guest, author April Yamasaki, she explores this contradiction in Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. The book is published by Herald Press. She draws on the ancient scriptural command to love God with your, uh, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. She helps readers think about the spiritual dimensions of attending to your own needs, setting priorities, finding true rest in a fast-paced world. And she weaves together personal stories, biblical and theological insights, questions for reflection, and the practical ideas for self-care. Four Gifts helps readers sustain their spirits and balance competing demands without adding more more items to their to-do list. And I know some of you, like me, are wondering, how is that even possible? Well, April Yamasaki is a pastor, speaker, and writer on spiritual growth and Christian living, a member of Redbud Writers Guild. She is the author of Sacred Pauses, and her work has appeared in Christian Century, Canadian Mennonite, and other venues. Yamasaki has more than 20 years' experience as a congregational pastor and leads workshops and Bible studies in denominational and other settings. Four Gifts is her 15th book. She and her husband Gary live in British Columbia, and we are delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you, Georgine. Well, this is a, a subject about which many of us struggle, because as you point out in the book, uh, in the introduction, self-care can sound a little bit self-indulgent, um, self-focused in a way that conflicts with what Jesus calls us to do. How did this subject become uh, serious enough for you to grapple with that seeming contradiction in order to do what I think is in all of our best interests, and that is to impose appropriate self-care. Well, when my publisher first suggested that I write on self-care, I, I actually wasn't so sure that I wanted to do that. I had written a blog article about self-care because I knew for myself that it was something that I did kind of on my own time. So I thought, yes, I I need to get a good night's sleep. I need to eat properly to be well-rested. 
to be engaged in life and ministry. But one day when I was reading another article by a pastor, and there was all this list of the things that a pastor does besides Sunday morning, the meetings and the hospital visits and so on, and on the list was self-care. And I wondered, really is self-care part of my job, part of my ministry too? So I'd written an article about that, and one of the editors at the publishing house contacted me, and she said, you know, this is really an idea for your next book because we hear about self-care all the time from people in our lives. Um, we we know that it's important, and yet how, does, how do we think about that in a Christian context? Mm. And so that's really what I was interested in. I said, you know, if you're looking for a book that's just about self-care, um, I have some questions and some ambivalences about that, and that's the part that I would be interested in exploring. So Four Gifts really became that exploration for myself and for others. How are we to understand that? Mm. I appreciate one of the lines you write, self-care makes my busy week possible. When you think about what it what's required in order to do the things that are important, the things that God is calling us to, um, self-care makes it possible to, over a long period of time, to do that work well and, and sustain. Uh, oneself. Yes. Um, some people might see self-care, narrowly speaking, as selfish, and it can be that if it's just focused on ourselves. But we can also think of self-care as a form of stewardship, that God mm-hmm. has gifted us with so much uh, heart, soul, strength, mind, energy, creative gifts, and so on. But how do we care for those and uh, offer them to other people? Yeah, I, I like the uh, the notion that this is a form of stewardship. I, I would imagine the Sabbath rest is an example of that. It is a reminder to us that we are uh, flesh, that we are frail, that we have certain limitations, and yet we live, especially in the 21st century, as if that were not the case, that we can be sustained without the level of maintenance that we even require for the vehicles that we drive. Yes, I think when you talk about creation and work and rest, I see self-care really embedded in that rhythm, mm-hmm. that it is not uh, that we were meant, uh, we weren't created to just go, go, go without stopping. We're actually created for that rhythm of using our creative energies in work and with great purpose and as God calls us. And at the same time, we are called to rest and ultimately uh, that is that is uh, what God has called us to, to rest in Him, not only in using our own energies. You, in the introduction, write about your struggle with self-care. Let's first of all define what it is and why that was a challenge for you as you explored not only how to incorporate that on a regular basis in your own life, but to then write about it. Well, I struggled with self-care in part because it felt selfish. And when I look at the world around us, with all of the needs in the world, where people are going hungry, where people are being displaced, uh, where there is great need for justice and reconciliation, um, why then would I focus so much on self-care and center self-care by writing a book about it? So that was that was one piece of my, my questioning. And then Jesus' call to self-sacrifice and to denial, uh, to picking up our cross and following. Um, how do we understand that if we're thinking about self-care? And some of what I had read about self-care seemed almost trivial. So now let's make time for... Uh, cloud watching and going to have a massage and uh, that sort of thing. And and some of those things can uh, give us good rest. But if that's all that self-care is, it seemed to be too small. So I I think I was searching for a bigger vision of self-care that would also include care for community, uh, care for justice, and that uh, would, would encourage me also to rest in God's care. 
Because sometimes I find that the approach uh, to self-care that I see uh, almost suggests that if I could only get better at self-care, then everything would be all right. Mm-hmm. But we are limited, no matter how good I get at self-care, uh, I am still limited and frail and still need to take that time for work and rest because that's embedded in creation and embedded in who we are as human beings. You referenced First Peter 5.10 that reminds us that God longs to restore, support, strengthen, and establish us. And there are limits to what we can do for ourselves in terms of that kind of care. So it is a, a partnership, and I appreciate you put it in that broader context because we need to recognize the role that God plays in, uh, in uh, caring for us. Now, as part of your search for the book, you explore four gifts that are drawn from the words of Jesus to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your minds, and uh, with your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Talk about these four gifts and the framework that you use in the book uh, for gifts uh, for your self-care. Well, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He talks about loving God and loving neighbor as ourselves. And some people in that see a third commandment to love ourselves. He doesn't exactly say it that way. Uh, He says, love God with your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, almost as if he would assume Mm -hmm. some love of self rather than than giving it the same priority as those other two commands. Um, Some of the early church fathers would have said, uh, and have written commentaries on that text and said, well, you have to be able to love yourself. That needs to come first, because if it doesn't, you can't love your neighbor. Some of the reformers, uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on that said, no, we are too much full of ourselves. And so loving ourselves cannot come first. Love of God and others needs to come first. And I find for myself, those are uh, the two poles that I find myself care in between those. But sometimes uh, I am too full of myself and I have to be reminded to love God first and to love others. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I am neglecting myself, so I need to be reminded, oh, and I need to love myself. So it's between those two extremes uh, that I find we find the place of of self-care that is refreshing. We're talking about the book titled Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. I'm talking with uh, April Yamasaki, the author. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with April Yamasaki. She is a pastor, speaker, and writer on spiritual growth and Christian living. Uh, four Gifts is her 15th book. She and her husband, Gary, live in British Columbia. And we're talking about Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. Now, the, um, uh, the book that we're talking about, you um, address specific uh, practices that can help us. You offer practical ideas for self-care. Um, and one of the things that you, uh, that you say is that sustaining our spirit and balancing competing demands without adding more items to the to-do list is possible. And I think that's maybe one of the more, most challenging thoughts about the notion of trying to incorporate um, self-care into an already uh, very busy life. Can you talk a bit about that? Give us some hope. <laughs> Well, for myself, early on in ministry, I was just so excited to be in a new church and in a new role that I simply said yes to all of the things I was asked to do. So what I like to 
uh, lead this Bible study? Yes, I would. And would I like to serve on this committee for the denomination? Yes, I would. And would I like to be a guest here? Yes, I would. And pretty soon I had this huge pile of yes, yeses that were all wonderful, but it simply became too much. And I realized that I needed to start saying no. And it started me down the path of being more deliberate to say, well, what really has God called me to? Mm-hmm. And where do I need to say yes? And where do I need to say no? And I actually kept a list in my journal. Whenever I would say no, I would write that down. And soon I could look back at that list and say, look, I said no to all of these things. And actually, people pretty quickly went on to somebody else. And and everything turned out fine with someone else taking care of those things and doing those things. And I realized that I didn't need to be saying yes to everything. So I find it helpful now to have an I don't do list. Just some things (laughs) that I... I don't do, and some of them are very simple, so um, I don't do surveys on the telephone when people call, and I don't do these personality tests that people share with me on Facebook, and for other people, these things may be something they want to do, feel called to do, find fun to do, or relaxing to do, and so blessings on them, but those are on my I don't do list, and I find that very helpful. Mm. You know, I so appreciate your saying that, because particularly for those of us who are followers of Christ, we're rarely asked to go rob a bank. Generally, everything that we're invited to participate in or to do is something that is good, that it it has value, Uh, it contributes to the the kingdom, Um, but we're not all called to do everything that, that is brought to our attention or we're asked to do, and to have permission to think, you know, maybe I'm depriving somebody else of this opportunity that that's not mine. Uh, and thinking that, you know, I, I really can say no. Um, and I need to be listening more carefully to what God is saying that he wants me to do. Exactly. I think of the story of Moses, who was called to lead his people and called to um, be the one who they came to with various uh, things happening in their lives and in their community and uh, being the one that people went to for counsel and advice. And that was his role. But so many people came that they would line up during the day and he would do that all day, every day. And his father-in-law looked at that and said, this is not good. And what he what he advised, his father-in-law advised, is that he would have other people who were wise that would help carry this responsibility. And that was much better for Moses in terms of his self-care. It was also much better for those that were able to be called out and use their gift. And it was much better for the community so that they weren't depending Mm. only on one man, but could depend on one another as a community. So it was not self-care in isolation of the community, but also good community care. One of the challenges that you've uh, just touched on a moment ago is self-care in a digital world. There are so many opportunities vying for our attention. I uh, can pick up my phone as I'm laying down to sleep and uh, just take a glance at Facebook. And before I know it, 30 minutes has gone by. What are some of the challenges of self-care in the digital world? Well, for some people, it is such a huge draw, and there have been some studies about how uh, something like Facebook even has an effect on the chemicals in our bodies that, that draws us to it. So it's a, it can be a powerful draw. I like to have a social media Sabbath once a week where I just don't do Facebook or Twitter or any of that from Saturday at 6 o'clock at night to Uh, Sunday at six o'clock at night. And I find for me, that's another way of saying, okay, I don't do that. It's great. 
to be on social media. It helps to connect us with many people, and I think that's wonderful, but it can also be too much. But one of my friends said, but how do you do that? She says, you're just relying on self-discipline. And I said, yes, in a way it is, because I simply say, okay, I don't do that now. Yeah. Uh, We're talking with April Yamasaki. She's a pastor, a speaker, and writer on spiritual growth and Christian living. She's the author of the book we're talking about today, Four Gifts. And it is a book that seeks self-care for heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, Let's talk about the four uh, pillars that you write about, heart, soul, mind, and strength. When it comes to self-care, can you talk a little bit about how each one of those four uh, divisions uh, can be practically lived out and how, for example, self-care for one's um, heart, how that plays out in the practical life of a follower of Jesus? Yes, the meaning of the four overlaps somewhat since they work together, Mm -hmm. and together they represent the whole person. But I I take heart to represent our total well-being, and in that section of the book I talk about our core commitments and setting priorities. Uh, The soul represents our spiritual well-being, and I think of Jesus taking time to pray. Uh, The mind represents our mental well-being. I think of, of reading and our intellectual stimulation there and mental health and then strength representing our physical well-being. Now what, what are the consequences? What are the benefits of appropriate self-care in the context of one's uh, community and in, uh, in one's faith? What might we expect as a result of um, appro- appropriating self-care? I find for myself with self-care that I am more grounded when I am able to take care of myself. So that's one of the things that it, it gives you more longevity in terms of your capacity to, to just thrive. Yes. Yeah, sorry, Georgine. I, I heard another uh, kind of voice in there, okay. so I'm sorry I paused there. Uh, yes, I find that I am more grounded in uh, how I go through my day if I am caring for myself and caring for others at the same time. And it's uh, sustainability in in life and ministry, for sure. Mm. Now, in the book, you offer um, some practical ideals for self-care. You also offer some personal stories, some biblical and theological insights, some questions for reflection. How do you see the book Four Gifts being um, read by those who are serious about really evaluating? Am I devoting sufficient time to am I a good steward over the time and the, the limitations that I have in this frail human body? I know that some are reading it simply on their own and others find it helpful to read as a group. So I've had a group of advanced readers, some who have simply read it straight through and now they've said, now I'm going to read it again and look at the exercises. Or now I want to read it again, but I'd like to do it with a small group. And so that's very helpful for us to support one another as we work at our self-care. Well, we often say to one another, take care of yourself. Um, We mean it, but we may not know how to actually go about that. But the book Four Gifts does provide us with sort of a roadmap and how we might evaluate life as we're living it and how to be a better steward over it. The book, once again, is titled Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. The book is published uh, by Herald Press. Uh, April, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. And I will tell you, I will incorporate much of what you've written in my own very busy, uh, busy life. Thank you. Excellent. I hope you will. (laughs) Again, April Yamasaki is the author of Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength.
Up next, we're going to talk with Kay Wills Wyma, the book, Not the Boss of Us, pushing overwhelmed, and it's or rather putting overwhelmed in its place in a do-all, be-all world. We'll also talk with Jarrett Stepman. He's the editor and commentator, commentary writer, rather, for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about the media's war on Brett Kavanaugh hitting a new low with the New Yorker um, article. There's been another disclosure since then, and we'll talk a bit about that as well. Although when we uh, first began um, preparing for this conversation, what uh, came out today with Mr. Avenatti had not yet been made public, but we'll try to uh, cover all of that when he joins me later in the five o'clock hour. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a lot going on. In fact, it was difficult to cover all of the news that developed just in the course of this day. Of course, we have two hearings. Well, I should say one hearing tomorrow, one meeting with the president tomorrow, and much of the nation's uh, attention and eyes will be fixed on those events. Uh, Jarrett Stepman joins us now to talk about one of those major events. So Brett Kavanaugh, as you know, has been hit with a series of accusations that he has vehemently denied. Uh, on Sunday, there was one in particular that appeared in The New Yorker. It published an article reporting that the Senate Democrats uh, are investigating allegations made by a Deborah Ramirez alleging that uh, when uh, she and Kavanaugh were both freshmen at Yale, he engaged in inappropriate behavior. A lot of questions have been raised about the validity of this claim and the fact that there are a number of uh, conflicts and contradictions. Jarrett Stepman, by the way, is editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. When you and I first contemplated having this conversation, um, there was only the Sunday accusation that was uh, relatively new. Since then, there's been another accusation leveled by uh, an attorney, Mr. Avenatti, whose name is familiar to many because of his role in uh, accusations against the president. Uh, let me ask you to share your impression generally about this most recent accusation, and then we'll talk about uh, Sunday's New Yorker uh, article. Absolutely. I think this most recent uh, allegation is, uh, in many ways, more extreme than, than the first two. I mean, this accusation, uh, as a woman claiming uh, she did attend high school with uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, but she says that she attended parties in which Kavanaugh uh, participated or, or perhaps even orchestrated, uh, which she claimed were gang rape and uh, drugging of women. And she claims that she attended numerous of these parties, that she saw Kavanaugh there. Uh, she claims that there are witnesses, however, none of the witnesses have corroborated the story or, or provided any kind of eyewitness uh, account. So I think this, this, this accusation uh, certainly, it, it, I think, is the most extreme of all of these. And as of right now, like with the others, doesn't have a whole lot of evidence other than the testimony of the single accuser, which has definitely been a thread throughout these accusations. Now, my understanding is the New York Times investigated for a couple of weeks to try to corroborate what uh, was being said in that uh, that series of accusations in which um, the the judge, Brett Kavanaugh, who, of course, was not a judge at the time, was not accused of um, of being involved in a gang rip, rape in which she was involved, but that he facilitated that and she had seen him in what she presumed was uh, others being um, abused by him and some other uh, of the boys. Uh, the accusation isn't entirely clear. There isn't at this point corroborating um, uh, witness. Uh, and the New York Times decided they were not going to publish the story because it was fairly weak and inconsistent. Your thoughts on their choice of, of um, choosing not to run the story? Well, I, I mean, it, it, I think it would be a good choice for, for many media outlets not to publish some of these stories. In fact, I'm still blown away by the fact that the, the New Yorker published the, the 
story on Sunday regarding the accuser at Yale. I mean, I think the basic journalistic practice and somebody, you know, myself, I've, I've been in the business for a while and it is incredible to see such, I think, such explosive claims made with uh, so very little corroborating evidence. I mean, not not getting any witnesses, uh, essentially just relying on sometimes the inconsistent testimony of a single accuser. I, I really question uh, media outlets that have run and broken these stories to begin with. I mean, this is, these are obviously, there's some very dire consequences um, to, to these stories for certainly this man's life and obviously the, the Supreme Court nomination. I mean, we were talking about some very serious accusations without a whole lot of evidence. I think that's why a lot of people in America, they see some of these stories with such little, I think, actual evidence. I think it caused a lot of people to distrust the media and think that there may be a partisan agenda behind it. Well, this process has been politicized to the point where I, I think there's very little confidence uh, that members of the Judiciary Committee can be trusted to now move forward and manage this in the right way. Uh, public um, interest polls are indicating that support for the judge, who hasn't had his day in court, so to speak, uh, is uh, is waning. What do you think about the decision to um, call for a vote on Friday after the hearing, uh, up or down, whether or not his nomination should be uh, moved forward into the full Senate? Well, obviously, this is a, a major development in American politics. I, I really do think a, a lot of the dynamics that are going to happen between the parties and the, the mood of the American people are going to depend on this. And, and I think I think a lot of Republicans have to be thinking that if, if they don't do so, if they don't call for a vote on this, uh, they're going to face a wrath from a lot of their supporters. I, I, it would be interesting to see how the polls develop, especially after the latest stories have broken. The, the New Yorker article, especially today's allegation, what the mood is of uh, the Republican base and also the Democrat base, which of course is very much fired up about all these allegations and is more prone, obviously, to, to believe that, the, that these accusers are correct. Uh, this could be a huge seminal moment. It's going to lead to a lot of bitterness, whether whether Kavanaugh is eventually confirmed or not. Uh, one of the sides, one of the parties is going to be very much aggrieved over this whole incident. So I think there are going to be large-term ramifications that in some ways I think will be even more dramatic than what happened under uh, Judges Bork and Judge, Ka- uh, Judge uh, Clarence Thomas uh, during their uh, Supreme Court nomination fights. I think this one has actually gotten more rancorous than those two uh, uh, nomination fights and will have more long-term consequences. Oh, without question. Have we jettisoned, are we seeing the end of the presumption of innocence? Now, this is not a court of law that's going to be held tomorrow. Uh, It's a hearing in which questions are going to be posed, but we've heard from several Democrats who've indicated that uh, under the, the uh, this unique set of circumstances that the presumption of innocence just simply does not apply. I think we are seeing that. I mean, especially given, you know, certainly the, the, the vague accusations that have been thrown at Kavanaugh really at this kind of 11th hour, you know, during these, these hearings. And it's kind of already presumed. I mean, a lot of media networks are already comparing this uh, to the Crosby, the, the Cosby case, uh, the, the rape allegations, and of course, the, the conviction. And so I think in many ways, people are willing to convict Kavanaugh in the court of public opinion when really there's not a whole lot of evidence out there against them. I mean, there really just, there just isn't based on the reports. And I think that that, that is kind of a dangerous moment. But, but people right now, they, they, they are led to believe what they want to believe. And, and Kavanaugh and some, and some quarters have certainly been convicted in the court of public opinion. Well, it's, it really is a, a mess. And I, I fear what the, the outcome will be, regardless of what 
decisions are made in the days following. If there's a hearing on Friday, I fear for the uh, the outcome, the, the backlash across the nation. If they postpone this and his uh, nomination is eventually abandoned, I fear for the the fallout uh, from that as well. And whether or not qualified individuals are going to be willing, particularly those with conservative worldview, if they are uh, going to be willing to put themselves in a position where um, they're going to be scrutinized to the point where perhaps uh, they're accused of things they hadn't done or uh, lines are crossed that make it impossible to defend oneself. Absolutely. I mean, people talk about Washington, D.C. being the swamp. And in my time here, this is this is the swampiest thing I've seen happen. I mean, just the level Level of rank coarseness is absolutely incredible, and you know this really is a, a turning point. And, and, and as you say, uh, it does call into question: Can a good person uh, step in, step into office? Can a good person be nominated to the Supreme Court? And what are the ramifications uh, if, if Kavanaugh does not get confirmed? And in some ways, in many ways, his career is destroyed by this. Uh, what does that say to the next guy who comes along, who may uh, also uh, seem to believe, seem like a good guy, a decent guy, who heads in and gets attacked by uh, media courts, whether they're true or? and has his career ruined, too. I think it has enormous implications for the future of politics. And, you know, we really are in, a, in an ugly place right now. This is kind of the gutter politics of the worst kind that I think American people are seeing. And it's it's very ugly. It's, it's destructive to the republic. Well, it certainly is. I, I hear many characterize this as a battle between men and women. This is actually a, a disagreement a, a, between a an individual, a man, and an individual. She does not represent womankind. He does not represent mankind. We have to look at this as two individuals, one of whom is making accusations, another who is denying those accusations, and weigh the evidence, if there be any. It may be that under this circumstance, it's not possible to prove with certainty one way or the other. There are some who are said in each of these three cases uh, to have been present. Uh, there are some inconsistencies, but it, it, to a man, as far as I know at this point, they've all denied either being at the uh, events, they've denied knowing anything about them, so that any possibility of cooperation has failed to um, surface up to this point. Now, that may change uh, in, in the days ahead, but it's just a very dangerous place to be when it's so highly politicized that truth uh, is no longer uh, at the heart of uh, what ultimately may emerge. Well, well, that's correct. And, and and one has to imagine, certainly with somebody like, like Kavanaugh going through this Rigner, you know, what he's dealing with, with his, with his family is being attacked. He has daughters who he has to explain this to. You know, his wife has obviously been, been shaken by the events of this. And it really is incredible. I mean, the, the level of these accusations are, are, are very extreme and, and they're based on not not a whole lot of evidence, and, and they're presented very, very quickly in succession. And, and it, it does, in many, I think to many, look like a coordinated political hit on a man, not just his professional career, but his, his personal character. And one can imagine, if, if he is telling the truth about all these things, what he must be going through right now uh, under this absolute incredible media circus and media firestorm that's been created in the last few weeks. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And I would say on the other end of this, the, the moral of the story would be if something happens as difficult as it may be, women are going to have to resign themselves to the fact that you must say something in a timely manner. You can't wait decades and expect uh, that you're going to be able to put a case together. We talk about women being empowered. Empowerment isn't saying something at some future point. I mean, it it may be cathartic, but if something occurs, it has to be reported in a timely manner so that people can be held accountable 
Um, and so uh, that's the other side of, I suppose, of this uh, story as well. If something happens, tell somebody. Um, uh, inform law enforcement. Uh, you can't expect uh, that necessarily you're going to get the kind of satisfaction you're looking for decades later. And then, of course, there's the statute of limitations, which is now being challenged in some places as well. Well, Jared, I know that we'll all be watching with uh, great interest the hearing tomorrow. I fear it's going to produce very little in terms of resolving the, uh, the issues at stake. But nonetheless, each will have an opportunity to have their say, and uh, we'll just see what uh, what happens next. That's absolutely correct. We'll see. Hey, Jarrett Stepman, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. Again, uh, Jarrett is the editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. It's been a bit of a tough day. Um, watching the news, listening to the stories, anticipating tomorrow with the uh, Kavanaugh hearing, it's really... Um it's really very sad to me to see where we're headed. Uh, the fact that this hearing tomorrow, I can almost guarantee, is going to be unsatisfactory in terms of resolving the issues that um, uh, that have been raised in the run-up to the uh, confirmation of the president's nominee. Um, I... Uh, made reference earlier in the program to um, then I think he was the chair of the of the Judiciary Committee, a former vice president um, who suggested that trying to get the FBI involved, they don't uh, they don't come to conclusions. It's a foolish thing. This was during the Anita Hill. Uh, this is Joe Biden, of course. Uh, Senator Biden became vice president, uh, making the point that the FBI, if you're looking for them to resolve this issue, to come up with some clu- conclusions, that's not what they do. And it's foolhardy to do that and uh, to look at where he and his party were at that time on the issue and where how things have shifted um, this time uh, and the uh, just the whole process leading up to a decision on whether or not an up or down vote has been made. The things that have been jettisoned in the process, like the notion of due process. Now, this obviously is not a court of law, but the notion of due process essentially being jettisoned, the presumption of innocence, uh, that women should be, be believed just because they're women and men should be um, uh, and their version should be rejected just because they're men without the requirement that uh, there be some sort of cooperation whenever possible. It's a sad day for me when I consider the republic. And then I have to put life in its much broader context and remember that we are here for a short time. We want to be men and women of influence. We want to live out the, the joy of our salvation. We want to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. And we shouldn't be surprised um, when this kind of conflict happens and the people are more divided than ever before, when there's more anger than ever before. And I say ever before, I've only had my lifetime and an under understanding of history, so that may uh, may not be entirely accurate, but certainly in my uh, lifetime, which has been, you know, several decades, um, this is just a very sad season. We've seen lots of them in the history of our country, but of course, we're not just citizens of the United States, and I'm grateful to be a citizen of the United States, but that's not my primary identifier. I belong uh, to a kingdom that um, that is a part of and outside of this country. And so I have to be reminded to uh, to fall to my knees to pray for this republic, for those uh, positions of leadership, that they would not be driven by self-interest, but would be men and women who are seeking justice and truth uh, wherever it may lead. I, I would pray that um, people who are going to be testifying would be truthful, um, that the motives behind 
some of what's happened would be made clear so that judgments can be made that are accurate and right and and true, that people wouldn't be so quick to take a side before even a word has been uttered. Most people haven't read the account of the accusations, at least in this first case. They're not really familiar with uh, what uh, others who were named have said. Know very little bit about it, but have already made a decision. I was reading a, a Facebook post, someone I love and care for, who simply said, you know, why, why isn't she being believed? Well, there are questions that need to be asked. It doesn't mean that you reject what an individual says, but you have to, for the in the interest of justice and truth and right, you have to uh, ask some serious and sobering questions. And when you're talking about empowering women, what's empowering is encouraging women moving forward um, to report what's happened to them in order to prevent it from happening to someone else in a timely way, uh, because our system of justice is set up to protect both the accused and the accuser and to make uh, make it possible for uh, charges that are levied to be proven. Um, The presumption of innocence is the right thing to do. Um, and also the uh, giving the accuser the opportunity uh, to um, to discuss what uh, what they allege has happened to them. All of that said, it's a very discouraging time for me. I'm I'm a little tired of hearing all the back and forth, the details and and all of that. But it's important to know what's going on beyond just what the headlines have to say, because they don't always get it right. Um, and it's a, a great opportunity for us once again uh, to pray for those who are in authority. We're told in Ephesians that that's that's what we ought to do. And this is a great reminder that uh, leaders in Washington on in both parties and both sides of this issue with differing opinions uh, definitely and desperately need divine help that this might uh, somehow be resolved in a way where the right things are are done. Anyway, all of that said, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to uh, talking with Meg Wilson. Uh, Meg is the author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. Uh, The book is uh, revised and expanded. The title might be familiar to you. It's uh, published by Craigle. We're going to talk with her about that in this Me Too moment and in a season when our culture is reeling from the sexual revolution that has left many uh, numb and in significant pain, uh, it's a timely subject. We're also going to cover, of course, events, the uh, hearing with the uh, judge and his accuser, other accusations that have uh, since emerged, I'm certain will be the subject of uh, those hearings. We're also going to uh, follow the meeting that the president is going to have with his deputy attorney general, and uh, his future is being considered, uh, we understand, in that meeting. And And again, it's just uh, another opportunity for us to be reminded of who we are in Christ and the role that we are called to play and to be men and women of uh, prayer and conviction and truth seekers, wherever that may may lead. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. I don't know who did what to whom. Um, My concern is that we go through a process that's fair to all concerned and ultimately come up with a solution or at least an answer uh, that can be lived with and perhaps uh, a a proviso that, you know, we need to be diligent to report what happens. And perhaps women today, young girls today are more likely to do that than 30, 35 years ago. Um, But let's hope that we're moving in that direction so that if something occurs, uh, it's it's told uh, appropriately and timely so that um, solutions and accountability are possible. All right. uh, Again, tomorrow, Meg Wilson, my guest, Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.